Well, Daniel Wagner was right. I am not cool enough to stand up here after that, after that sermon bumper. I, uh, I downloaded that song to my phone as a ringtone thinking it might make me cool, but I don't think it works. So you just have to bear with me this morning. Hey, turn with me in your Bibles now to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8. Today we're going to finish our sermon series, Heart Matters. Um, we're going to look at a defensive heart. That is a heart that refuses to take instruction and refuses to live wisely. Um, and as you're turning there, just as a teaching team, while Robert has been on sabbatical through the month of July, that's where he's been. He's been resting and recovering and just getting ready for the fall. Uh, and our, and then as we as we get ready to go into the end of the year, uh, he's been he's been uh, spending some time with the Lord and just getting ready for that. So we've enjoyed preaching through Proverbs uh, and doing this series while he's been gone, and he'll be back next week. Um, but it's our prayer and our hope that the Lord has been working in your heart through this, um, and that He's been showing you things about Himself that you may not have seen or known. And so hopefully he's been doing a, a work on your heart. Um, Proverbs is loved by many for devotional reading. Um, it's a great book for practicality, um, but it can be difficult to grasp at times, especially if we isolate certain verses from the overall theme of the book of Proverbs. And when we divorce those, those verses, when we separate those and kind of look at them as a one-off sentence, separated from the message of the entire Bible. If we look at certain Proverbs, like the one we're looking, to, looking at today, as a standalone verse or unconnected verse, we might get the sense that Proverbs is just a collection of one-off sayings that has no relation to one another, have no relation to one another. They don't really teach us much about God, much less about His character and how to understand it and how we are to relate to God. As a matter of fact, even the definition of the word proverb can be ambiguous. The Oxford Dictionary defines a proverb as a short and pithy saying in general use, stating a general truth or piece of advice. It's a good definition. I think it, I think it tells us what a proverb is, but it doesn't necessarily tell us what a proverb does. But in the Bible, the book of Proverbs is part of a genre of literature, it's what, what is known as wisdom literature. That is, books like Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Song of Solomon, the overall thrust of those books then is to teach us how to live well. But not just to live well for the sake of ourselves or how we would define living well or to measure up to our own standards or just to have a good life and move on, but Wisdom literature of the Old Testament teaches us specifically how to live well according to how God has revealed himself and how we're to relate to him and how living the way that he intends for his people to live will go well for us in order that we will receive glory and find our ultimate joy in him. Now, that's a really wordy way of saying this, the overarching message of the book of Proverbs and all that's contained within it is how to live well for God according to how he has defined living well, namely through pursuing his wisdom and obeying his commandments. So that's, that's kind of the overarching idea of the book of Proverbs. Now, before we get to verse 8, um, which, is our, which is our verse for today, there's, there's a couple things I want to show you that's kind of going on in this section of Scripture in Proverbs. And this is a little bit technical. I'm not going to belabor this. We're not doing a grammar class or a syntax class. This is not a Hebrew class, and which I would be terribly unqualified to preach because I literally made a D- minus in Hebrew in seminary. Just being honest. Bear, bear with me here, though. There's, there's some things, there's some technicalities going on in the text. 
Hey, I passed Hebrew. It's okay. I mean, a D, you know, D for degree, right? Chapter 10, in chapter 10, verses 6 through 32, kind of, they form this cluster of verses, this, this kind of um, block where the theme is the righteous and the wicked. So in chapter 10, verses 6 through 32, it's contrasting the righteous and the wicked. The virtues of the righteous are upheld and highlighted while there's multiple warnings to the godless and the wicked. Specifically in verses 6 through 11, there's this and here's the technical part, just bear with me. There's this literary device called an inclusio. This may be more than you ever wanted to know about Hebrew grammar, but there's this inclusio, which is common in ancient Hebrew writings when the author really wants to highlight a, a certain theme or a point um, or an idea. It's basically a word sandwich where phrases are repeated and words are repeated and ideas are repeated so that the author can drive that point home. And so here's, here's how this works out. Um, in verses 6 and 11, they end with the same phrase, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. In verses 7 and 9, uh, they parallel each other by showing the fate of the righteous as opposed to the fate of the wicked. And then verse 8, our verse today, parallels verse 10, and they end with the same phrase, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. So in essence then, what Solomon, Solomon wrote the Proverbs, what he's doing with this inclusio is he's showing us that the, the message he's highlighting is that whatever it is that people desire and how they attain those desires indicates the path that they're walking. Okay, so either it's either a path towards wisdom or a path towards foolishness. In other words, we could say the mark of the wicked is deceitfulness and destruction, but the godly are known by the favor of God that's up on their lives, and that favor is a wise heart that obeys the Lord. So, technical stuff out of the way, background established, we can now come to our verse for today, Proverbs 10, verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Now, looking at that proverb, I've got several immediate questions. First, for instance, what is a wise heart and how do we get one? What are the commandments that we should receive and how should we receive them? And what about a babbling fool causes ruin and what is the ruin that they come to? So remember, Proverbs is teaching us how to live well according to how God has defined living well for his glory, for our joy. So with the purpose of Proverbs in mind, let's answer those questions in our remaining time. So what is a wise heart and how do we get one? So if the godly are known by having a wise heart, how is a wise and godly heart different from the heart that we're born with? Remember we said in the series, Nick Crawford I believe said this a couple weeks ago, he said that the command, the, our hearts are the command center of our lives. They are the seat of who we are. They have, a, they have an impact on what we want and what we desire and a profound impact on what we do. And if that's true, and I, I believe it is true, the question then becomes whether or, whether or not our hearts naturally lead us toward pursuing the wisdom of God or naturally lead us away from the wisdom of God. Can we trust our hearts? So I, I got on Google this week, and I, I, um, I got on Google. Gosh, I'm, I'm only 40. I'm not that old. I Googled why we should trust our hearts, okay? And, and here's what came up. I got, all these, I got all these links and all these websites, and, and here was the prevailing idea, that our hearts are, they're always right, 
They never lead us astray. They should be listened to at all times without question. Um, our hearts, according to how we're to understand them based on the prevailing culture, they always have our best interest in mind. They should guide all of our decision-making and all of our relationships. And after all, because they're the epicenter of who we are, our hearts can't be bad because way down deep, we're, we're all really good people. On that Google search, I was led to Oprah.com. And um, if you, you may not know me that well, but if, if you've had more than a three-second conversation with me, you may know that Oprah.com's not bookmark in my browser, right? Like, that's not a website. I've never been there before, and I would love to never go back. But here is what Oprah.com says about the human heart, okay? This is, this is interesting. Your heart is your essence. Your true heart is not subject to chaos or limited by pain and fear and neuroses but it's joyful, creative, and loving. Your heart is a source of great richness, and its wealth is one that cannot be squandered or lost. It's the core, the essence of your being, a reservoir of joy, powerful love, and infinite compassion that lives within you. So one of my favorite preachers, one of his favorite things to say to his congregation, he says, you're sensible people. Okay, so, so Fondren Church, you're, you're sensible people, so be honest with yourself. Is that an accurate description of your heart? Is your heart naturally immune from chaos or fear or pain or neuroses? Does powerful and infinite compassion live within your heart? Now, if you're like me, in many ways you're not like me because I'm weird and you're probably normal, but in this respect, I would imagine we're very similar. The exact opposite is true of my heart. My heart, John Wood's heart, is full of chaos. That may be surprising to hear a pastor say. My heart is full of chaos. It's full of pain from former wounds. It's scarred by past experiences. Fear and neuroses? Yeah, absolutely. Like crazy neuroses. And if you don't think you have any of that, then ask your spouse or your best friend and let them point out to you the ways that these things manifest themselves in your life. My wife could really, really hurt me by, not hurt me, but she could really embarrass me by telling you the ways that these manifest in my life. Here's what the Bible says about our hearts. Psalm 51.10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So David's saying that until our hearts are cleansed, they're dirty. They are covered in sin and need cleansing. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ezekiel 11.19 says that God will remove the heart of stone and give his people a heart of flesh. Ezekiel is he's showing us that our hearts are they're naturally hardened towards God and they need to be made new so they can be receptive towards God. And just so we don't think this is an Old Testament idea, Jesus himself in Matthew, Matthew 6, 21 says that for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's quite a different picture of our hearts than what is painted on Oprah.com. So then what are we to do? What do we need well, we need a wise heart like Solomon calls us to in Proverbs 10.8. We need God 
to replace our hardened heart of stone that is set against him with a heart of flesh that can receive him and obey his commandments. That is what a wise heart is, a heart that is receptive towards God. When Proverbs, in in, in another place in Proverbs, it talks about guarding our heart for it's the wellspring of life. When it talks about that, it doesn't mean keeping ourselves closed off. A guarded heart from God is the path to destruction, but a guarded heart for God is the path to the wellspring of life. That's a wise heart. That's a heart God will use. So I think this will be on the screen. You don't have to flip there, but back in Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 6, this is the wisdom Solomon calls us to. This is, he, he, he defines the, the wisdom that he's calling our hearts to pursue, and it comes from God. Here's what it says. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the way of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. So do you see now what a wise heart is? It's a heart that's given to us by God so that we may know God and obey God, so that we will receive his instruction and live the way he intends for his people to live so that it may go well with us. That is for his glory and free from those who would pull our hearts further away from him. But how do we actually get that new heart? Do we just try harder to be the best versions of ourselves that we can be? Do we just kind of make some behavior modifications? Do we just kind of live our best life? Well, we, we can't do that because we can't replace our own heart of stone. We can't just, as it were, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps because of one preacher I've heard say, he's like, we don't have any boots Only God can do this, and he will if we respond to him in faith. Jesus' call to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is the call to all of us. We must be born again. We must be made new. We must be given a new heart that can respond to God in faith and obey him. And that happens when the gospel is preached, when the word of God is received, and it does its work in the hearts of its hearers. God shows us that what Paul wrote, Ephesians chapter 2 is in fact true, that we are by nature children of wrath, dead in our sin, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together in Christ. The Spirit of God awakens our cold, dead hearts and makes us alive That's what God calls us to in the gospel. Life with him, life by him, and life for him. So then, the wise heart that's given to us by God is one that recognizes its own limitations and receives the instruction of God joyfully because the wise heart knows that life and joy can be found nowhere else but in him because in him we live and move and have our being. 
The wise heart humbly accepts good teaching and good instruction and receives God's commandments. And what of these commandments? So that's our second point. What are the commandments that we should receive and and, and how should we receive them? So oceans of ink have been spilt discussing how the law and the commandments work and how if we're in Christ, we're to relate to them. Okay, I'm not going to unpack all that this morning. I don't have time to do that. That's its own sermon. But however, let me say this. If you're not a believer, if you still have a heart of stone, and you're closed off to the living and life-giving power of the Spirit, if you've never repented of your sin and turned from it and to the great love of the Father in Jesus Christ, you stand condemned before God under the weight of the law. Romans and Galatians and the entirety of the Bible attest to that, and they make it clear that until Jesus came and fulfilled the law, its main purpose was to crush us under its weight and bear witness against our inability to live up to God's standards. The law showed us that we, no matter how hard we tried, could fulfill its demands and make ourselves righteous. It points to one that must justify us on his merit outside of ourselves. It points to Jesus, and we need him desperately. That's what the law does when you're outside of Christ. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan beautifully illustrates this when he tells of the character Faithful going up the mountain on his way to the celestial city. On the way, Faithful encounters a brute of a man who beats him down over and over and over. And when Faithful begs this man for mercy, the brute replies, I don't know how to show mercy. And he continues to beat him down again and again and again. But then another man comes one with holes in his hands and in his side and in his feet. And he subdues the brute, allowing faithful to continue on his journey. And as in Bunyan's brilliant analogy, the brute is what the law did before Jesus came, constantly beating us down with its demands and its requirements, showing no mercy for our failings. But Jesus came and fulfilled the law and its demands, securing righteousness and justification for those of us who belong to him. And if you're not in Christ, if you've not placed your faith in him, the law demands your perfection. And it will beat you down over and over and over again without mercy every time you fail. But those of us who are in Christ, we relate to the law in Christ's perfection rather than our own. We rely on his perfection that satisfied the law's demands. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. He has pleased God for those of us who are in him. Therefore, God is pleased with us who are in him. Don't miss that. That's the foundation of the Christian life. You can live your whole life on that truth. All that to say, if you're not in Christ, your first step is to hold up the empty hands of faith. Confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, repent of your sin, turn to Christ, and be reconciled to God. The offer stands for you right now. That's the only way of life and wisdom and freedom. They're only found in Christ alone. But what about those of us who are already in Christ, those of us who are believers, those of us who are Christians? What are we to do with the commandments? Because Jesus fulfilled them all, right? So then we're not obligated to obey them. Well, no, we, 
um, the Bible is clear. I think I, I think I preached on this back in a few months ago in Peter. Be holy because I am holy. That is still a commandment that those of us who are in Christ are, are obligated to, to obey. We're still to obey the Lord and walk the way that he's called his people to live. Yes, we're under grace. Yes, we're in Christ. But the law and the commandments of God are the train tracks on which the grace of God runs. So then, while we don't rely on our efforts to obey the law and God's, command, God's commandments as our way to salvation, we do see them as evidence that salvation has taken place. Obeying God and God, obeying God's commandments leads us into the wisdom of following God closely. It's how we give Him glory, and it's how we receive His joy. So receiving God's commandments then are how we live well according to how God Himself has, has defined living well. When we're made alive by Christ, we're, when we're given a new heart that seeks wisdom and is receptive toward God, our desires change. Our affections, as Jonathan Edwards says, change. Sin is no longer as appealing to us as it was before, and Jesus is more sweet and more desirable, and sin looks less desirable. Now, of course we still sin. Of course we still fall. Of course we still give in to sin's draw. But that no longer characterizes our life in Christ. We obey God's commands. We receive them in faith because now we understand what we said earlier in the sermon, that whatever it is that people desire and how they attain it indicates the path that we are walking. So are you walking the path of wisdom or are you walking the path of foolishness? Receiving God's commands and obeying his law are how we are made wise. It's how we demonstrate our love for him, but it's not how we earn his favor. So practically, I want to give you a couple things that, that, that can help us receive these commands if we're in Christ. How do we receive the commands that, that God has given us in, our, in, in his word? Now, I keep, these, um, I keep these in my Bible on a bookmark. Uh, the church I was at before I came to Fondren put these on bookmarks, and um, I wish I could get them for you. I guess I could print them off, but they'd be black and white, whatever. If you want one, email me and I'll, I'll see if I can make it happen. But um, I keep these in my Bible because they remind me that Jesus has already done these for my justification, but that I'm also, it reminds me that I'm not absolved from obeying God's commands myself. His commands call us to obedience and to wisdom and away from foolishness. So here, here, here are these four things, these tangible ways. First, these will be on the screen, I believe. I receive each command as revelation showing me the moral beauty of God, and I stand in awe of his glory. Now, this is not moralism as a way of pleasing God, but seeing how beautiful he is in his perfect standards. Number two, I receive each command as confrontation, showing me that my, my urgent need for God, and I open up to his scrutiny. While we're on this side of eternity, we're still sinful, and we remain in desperate need of him. His commands then confront that in us and call us to be more like him. Number three, I receive each command as instruction, showing me how to live in God's grace, and I ask him for the strength to take the next step. So as we obey, as we seek wisdom and receive his commandments, we are moving into a, a deeper reality with God as we stumble forward by faith, putting one foot in front of the other. We just keep moving forward and taking the next step in faith with God's help. Number four, I receive each command as God's promise because God is writing his commands on my heart and I rejoice that my perfect wholeness 
is coming soon. Now, this corruptible flesh that we are in must one day put on the incorruptible, as Paul says, and our sanctification will be complete. Now, in a sense, it already is, because Ephesians makes it clear that we are right now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, but we're still here, so we're still in the sinful the sinful fallen world, but our, our, our spiritual justification, we're, we're, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. So it's kind of this both now and not yet. But obeying God this way, receiving his commands this way, it, it, they, it points us to this final realization of the reality that our sanctification will finally be complete. So receiving God's commandments in this way is not what a defensive heart does. This is, this is what a wise heart, a heart that's open to the Lord does. So hopefully this will be helpful to you as you seek having a wise heart. But what about the second half of the verse? What about the babbling fool? Well, let's quickly take a look at that. So what about a babbling fool causes ruin, and what ruin will he come to? So now remember, verse 8 comes in a section where the righteous are being contrasted with the wicked. The righteous then, in our, if you remember the word in, in this inclusio that, that this passage falls in, um, they are those who have wise hearts um, who receive the commandments of God. And, and another characteristic in this section, in this contrasting section, it has a lot to do with the imagery of the mouth and the lips and the tongue and speech and so forth. And so this, this is why the unwise here are, um, they're being compared to babbling fools because they don't receive the commandments of God because a babbling fool can't be quiet enough to listen to him. The fool has no need of a teacher because he knows everything already. He can't be instructed. That's a heart God won't use. The heart that refuses to be taught the heart that refuses to be instructed, the heart that babbles on like a fool about all the things that we're certain of, the heart that trusts its own goodness is a heart that's defensive to God and offensive to God. Incessant babbling is the mark of a fool. Real world example of that, go online or turn on the TV for 10 seconds. And being a fool is a mark of the wicked. Remember that we said the mark of the wicked is deceitfulness and destruction. But the godly are known by the favor of God upon their lives, and that favor is a wise heart that obeys the Lord. So the fool then is headed for destruction because he needs no instruction, or at least thinks he needs no instruction from God. The babbling fool trusts his own heart and relies on himself and has no need of God. That's the path of the wicked and it comes to ruin. Well, what ruin? Well, the word ruin here is fascinating. I, I didn't know this until I was putting this together, but the word for ruin here in Proverbs is it's only used three times in the entire Old Testament, and two of them are right here in chapter 10, verse 8 and verse 10. So two-thirds of the time this word is used in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, um, are right here. The third time is in Hosea chapter 4, and it has to do with the unbelief of Israel and their spiritual blindness when it comes to obeying God's commandments. Now, in a sweeping generality, um, the, the nation of Israel, the people, they are described in the Bible in multiple places as a people who were ever seeing and never believing. They were always perceiving but never understanding, and they had calloused hearts. They had foolish hearts. 
The, the parallel of that to our verse today is amazing. So fools are spiritually blind. They can't see or know who God is because they have dead hearts, blinded by sin. They profess to be wise, but they are fools and marked for ruin. Now, many years later, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 fleshes that out for us, and he defines the spiritual blindness and talks about the ruin that the fool will come to. I'm just going to read this. This won't be on the screen, but here's what Paul writes in Romans 1. This is the ruin that comes to those who are foolish and babble on and don't seek God's wisdom and have dead, cold, stony hearts. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and it, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever." So the ruin that the fool will come to is when God says, have it your way, and removes himself from wooing us and calling us to himself, and God takes his hands off and says, here is the reward for your spiritual blindness, your own destruction. Now, that's what spiritual blindness is. That's the, 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 it's the lie that we can trust ourselves, that we can trust our hearts, that we are already on the right path and that we're already going to be okay, that we don't need anybody outside of ourselves. That lie leads to our destruction and to our ruin. I, I was joking with, with Nick and Daniel Wagner uh, this week about, uh, they, they kind of they tongue-in-cheek challenged me to quote a living preacher. Um, who is not John Piper. So, so here you go. Of this lie, of this, of this lie about spiritual blindness, Sinclair Ferguson, he pastors in South Carolina. He's alive. You can Google him and listen to him preach. He's excellent. Sinclair Ferguson says, the gospel is designed to deliver us from this lie for it reveals that behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death for us is the love of a father who gives us everything he has, first his son to die for us and then his spirit to live within us. Therefore, here's the call. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Turn from your sin and to God and he will give you a heart of flesh that pursues wisdom and receives commandments and lives for the glory of God and doesn't babble on like a fool without need of instruction. Now, this call to faith, while that's, while that's a good call to faith, this one's better. This one comes from a dead preacher from 1764. A, uh, I, I had to do it. But a Scottish pastor named James Durham beautifully makes this same call, and it's for all of us this morning. And here's what Pastor Durham says. It's not to one or two or some or few of us that are called. Not the great only, nor the small only. Not the holy one, nor the profane only. But all are bid. 
the call comes to all and every one of you, poor and rich, high and low, holy and profane, this offer is to all of you. To you who are atheists, to you who are graceless, to you who are ignorant, to you who are hypocrites, to you that are lazy and lukewarm, to the civil and the profane, we pray and beseech you to come to the wedding. Grace can do more and greater wonders than just to call such as these. It can not only make the offer of marriage to Christ, but it can effectually make the match between them and him. Pursue a wise heart. Come to Christ and come and live. Well, that's my sermon. I'm going to call the band forward. We're going to, we're going to go now to the Lord's table and we're going to celebrate Holy Communion. On your way in, you should have received a cup with the elements, the breads on top, or the wafer rather, and the juice underneath. If you didn't receive that, raise your hand. We have some people who will make sure you get some. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, and He is the Lord of your life, and you have been given a new heart by Him, you are welcome and invited to join us in this celebration of what the Lord has done for us. But if not, if you're still outside the faith, man, we are so happy you're here. But we ask that you abstain from participating in this because the, the, the Bible warns those who have not confessed Jesus against participating in the Lord's table. This is sacred to those of us who are believers. And as we celebrate and remember what Jesus did for us in his death and burial and resurrection, and that is securing our eternal hope in him. So I'm going to read, here's how this will work. I'm going to read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then when I finish, we'll, we'll take the elements together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that, on, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul continues and he says, For as often as you drink this bread and eat, as you eat, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's take the cup and the bread together. time of giving as we sing and celebrate what the Lord has done. So I'll call the ushers forward and let me pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for calling us to wisdom, calling us to live in a way that might go well for us according to how you have defined living well. Thank you for the life that you have called us to in Christ. God, I pray that our our hearts will receive that this morning, Lord. I pray that you will draw people to yourself. Awaken dead hearts and strengthen, strengthen hearts that you have already awakened. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to stay away from foolishness. We celebrate, Lord, what you've done for us at the cross. 
sending Jesus to, to pay the penalty, to fulfill the demands of the law so that the law will no longer beat us down, but show us your beauty and show us our need of you and let us celebrate what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, you are our perfect righteousness and we rest our entire hope in that. Lord, we ask you to take our tithes and offerings and bless them, use them for your kingdom and your glory. Thank you for our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.